0: Hi, our first reading tonight comes from Genesis chapter 12 and it's on page 8 of your Bibles. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morim at Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were there in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sari, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sum- summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? What did you say- Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Our second reading tonight comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16, which is on page 851. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered himself faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as he, as good as dead, came descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them.
1: Let me just make... Oh, I'm on always make the mistake. Let's start by praying. Father, we do uh, long with faith uh, for that day uh, where there is no weeping and no pain and no suffering, uh, for that day when uh, the illnesses uh, relating to the fistula are done away with. And by faith, we know that you hold us now. And Father, by faith, we ask you now to speak to us through your word as you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as a student, um, I tend to try and find the cheapest bargains for books everywhere I can. And of course, that I end up finding those online. Um, and I just want to tell you a bit of an experience that I had with one poor little thin paperback that I ordered recently. Um, I ordered it, and a little while later, I got it, and it was completely munted. Um, it was a really nasty job. This thing was bent straight down the middle. The spine was broken. Pictures still into my mind of an evil mailman, you know, big fingers, beady eyes, throwing parcels around the back of his truck willy-nilly. I'm still you know, obviously processing this. It's okay. Um, anyway, I wrote an email to the company informing them that I was upset with the state of the book that I'd received, and they replied promptly. I was really chuffed. They said, really sorry about that. Um, here's another book. Well, they didn't say, here's another book. They said, we'll send you another book. And I, th- and I, was, I was really actually quite happy about it. And uh, it, it made me question. I said, hold on a second. Uh, they didn't ask me to prove it. Uh, for some reason, uh, my response was one of skepticism. And I started losing faith that this company was actually going to send me this book. They didn't ask me for any proof that there was damage to the goods like they have on other occasions. And I started waiting uh, for days, and that was okay, but then for weeks. And I started questioning, how long do they normally uh, take to send these things? Uh, When was the last time I sent a book, and how long did it take? I started uh, checking my mailbox regularly and frequently, and nothing was there. And weeks turned to months. And... I threw my faith in, to that, in that company. I couldn't trust it anymore. That was 11 months ago. I didn't receive a book. And all I've got is this little remnant of a little chewed up thing that some evil mailman um, screwed up in his, in his mail truck. Um, am I meant to order a book from this person again, this, this company? I won't name them. I, I don't think I can. I've lost faith in this company. And I wonder, do you know this feeling as a Christian? This sense in which... We trust in God, but at times we're not sure if we can actually trust in God. You know, you've heard some of the great promises that God has made to you. Something as great as the forgiveness of your sins. The fact that from day to day you can know a clean conscience. You can know that you are reconciled with God. how about the promise that Jesus makes at the end of Matthew's gospel? Truly I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a pretty good promise. Or how about that promise that Jesus makes um, that he is, the resurrection of the, uh, he is the resurrection and the life, that those who believe in him, though they die, they will live. That's a pretty good promise. That's the kind of promise, I mean, I don't know how many, how many times I've lent on that promise. But sometimes, and this is the problem with promises, isn't it? That promises are invisible. You can't see them. They can be invisible because they're in the future and you, you know, just have to wait. And sometimes you just have to wait and wait. And there's no evidence, really, that this is going to be fulfilled from the experiences that you have and from the things you can see around you. And like with my experience with the reordered book, talk can be so cheap that you wonder whether or not you can actually trust God. Sometimes your patience just runs out and you don't. You're not, like, where is the evidence for the fact that God has forgiven my sins? I can't see my sins forgiven. The guilt remains at times. Where's the, where's the evidence that, that Jesus is with me always? I can't see him. I don't feel any different. Well, where's the evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead and that I'm going to be raised from the dead? never seen someone raised from the dead before. How do I know that's going to happen to my, my friend who passes away in the future sometime? How do I know that I'm not just going to throw my faith in then? And so there's a problem with promises. How do we actually trust them? I mean, for a promise to be a promise, they kind of need to be invisible. If they're not invisible, then they're just a gift. You know, if I promised you money and then gave it to you, it's not a promise anymore, is it? It needs to be invisible. But how do we trust them? And friends, this is a really key issue of the Christian faith, isn't it? This is central to what it means to be a Christian. Um, And so we need to explore it. I want to explore it a bit tonight. And when it comes to faith, there's one man in the New Testament that uh, is continually referred back to, and his name is Abraham. And we read about him in the story tonight. Abraham, they call him the the man of faith. Uh, And our passage tonight uh, shows us the beginning of his story. In fact, he's he's actually called Abraham in our story. He's not called Abraham. He has a bit of a name change down the track, but that doesn't need to concern us now. Abraham, it seems, is a man who lived and walked by faith and not by sight, and we need to draw from his example. So it'll be good for you to keep your Bible open to Genesis chapter 12. And by way of outline, um, there's just going to be—I'm uh, just going to step through the passage. Um, hopefully, there's an outline that's going to appear on the screen at the right time that'll help you step through it. Um, but I won't make too much of an indication. Um, but we pick up the story of creation. Uh, of course, we've been going through the. the the book of Genesis recently, and this is our sadly, this is our last night. Uh, this is it. This is the last one. Um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed stepping through and seeing. Uh, do you remember back to that first week where we sat there and just stood in wonder at the fact that God has created such a beautiful world, um, and then we stood and saw things go so rapidly downhill, um, just as humanity just rebelled and they were so wicked. And well, if it's one thing about Genesis 1 to 11, I think you'd agree that it calls a spade a spade. It doesn't try and hide the ugliness from us. It doesn't pretend that there isn't bad stuff. It calls broken what's broken. Now the other day I was making a pot of tea, um, and I was actually, you know, I made the cup of tea, and I went to clean my my teapot, and it slipped from my hand and broke. And, you know, uh, I was kind of sentimental. This teapot was a gift, I had some good cups of tea from it. And as I sat there, I just stood there wondering what to do. I was like, should I try and fix it? You know, and I I gave it a bash. I pulled out the sticky tape and tried to sticky tape this tea box back together, and it was pretty dodgy. And so I I gave up on that and just decided, well, you know, I could actually get some strong glue, some of that expensive stuff, and get the, the porcelain bits together. And I just decided it's not worth it. I mean, it was a nice teapot and everything, but it wasn't that expensive. I'll just go and buy another one. But what is it that God does when his world is broken? What does God do when his world has slipped off the shelf, so to speak? When uh, the people that he created have rebelled against him and he's been forced to bring curse on them? Uh, When they're so wicked that he's been forced... To destroy and bring, bring substantial destruction to their lives. Uh, what does he do once their arrogance um, comes to a climax and they, they plan and scheme to build a tower and leave him completely out of the plans and he's forced to scatter them? When they're consistently insolent, when they're evil all the time, what do you do when you're God? Well, you pour out your grace. You pour out grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what God does. In response to human evil, He is gracious. So I want us to pick up uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Let's have a read and see what he actually does. Verse 1, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, this, when you talk about purple passages in the Bible, this is one of them. This is a key text. Let's let's try and get our heads around what it has to say. And I think there are probably three things that are worth noticing to begin with um, as God manifests his grace. Uh, Just a few things that the method, his instrument, and his scope. I just want to talk about those three. So first look at the method. Uh, The first few words makes it clear that God's method is speech. The Lord speaks. And it takes us back to the very, very beginning of the Bible when the Lord spoke that time. Do you remember that? Uh, There was nothing around him. There was just God. No one to sort of force him into creating the world. He wasn't threatened. No one dared him to create the world. It was simply out of the overflow of his love that he said, let there be light. And there was. And he created this beautiful creation out of the overflow of his love. And it demonstrates God's love is in a vacuum. It's not compelled by any external kind of force. It's pure grace. And so we come to this situation and God speaks into this dire situation of humanity and he speaks graciously again purely by his grace. Second, notice the instrument that his grace is focused on is a person called Abraham, okay? Now, uh, you might not know a lot of Abraham before this. I mean, we know him as the father of faith, of course, from the New Testament. But looking backwards, he's not much to speak for. Um, If you went and looked somewhere in the book of Joshua, it says that Abraham and his family, uh, before the Lord called him, were moon worshippers. Clearly not doing too much for him, though, because his situation at the end of chapter 11 is rotten. In fact, it's pretty depressing. Uh, Abraham's brother has died, uh, leaving an only son. His name's Lot. Um, Abraham's nephew. Uh, Abraham's other br- uh, brother. Uh, we won't read it now. But Abraham's other brother uh, marries his own niece. I mean, this this is off the charts, isn't this? Is bold and the beautiful kind of stuff. Um, and of course, Abraham's situation himself. He's not in a great position. Um, his wife's barren, and so there's a situation that's fairly hopeless. And yet, God decides to focus on him. And he speaks his grace. First, a command: leave everything, his land and his people. And secondly, he speaks a promise that God would provide him more land and more family, offspring. Lots of offspring. Now, I'm not sure how many you know people here are really into offspring. This is a really good thing for this is a really good thing for Abraham. He wants lots of kids, so a big grin appears on his face when he hears that. It's Abraham family in particular, that God is going to bless and make into a nation. So this is the thing, that God pours his grace on creation, but he focuses it on this one family, onto this one family where he demonstrates his grace into a hopeless situation, he brings blessing. And if you look back to that story of Babel, do you remember last week, that story of the Tower of Babel, where these men arrogantly gathered together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower to the heavens? And of course, God comes down and he'll have none of that. And he scatters them across the earth. Well, God almost picks up on this kind of idea. Instead of having this evil human community that's building itself, he builds his own community. And he focuses on this, this depressing man, Abram. And he says, I will make. I will bless. I will make. I will bless. It's emphatic. And so God's instrument will be Abraham and his family. So that it demonstrates God's grace. God's grace. Again, but then uh, notice thirdly that the scope of God's grace isn't limited to Abraham's family. He speaks in the, the life of Abraham, and you see that at the very end of the passage, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is of universal significance. And it's no small promise. In fact, uh, Paul in the letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, he says that this was the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. He recognized this promise as a forerunner to the gospel. And it, I mean, obviously, you know, Paul's saying that, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the one that we put our faith in, the one who ultimately brings blessing and poured out his life so that people might be blessed. And you look around now and look at us in the corner of this world in Sydney as we receive these wonderful promises, the promise of the forgiveness of your sins. The promise that Jesus is with you. The promise that you will be raised from the dead. These blessings have spread from Abraham's family through the pages of scripture. And you know know, the bulk of this scripture has been talking about Abraham's story. And it's come and it's been given to you. Blessing has gone to the end of the earth. Take stock, won't you, of how gracious God is. Take stock... Of his riches and his storehouse. Make sure you run your fingers through it regularly, won't you? Remember that God is gracious and that's how he works. He doesn't have obligations to bless, it's not his job to forgive, as some people say. It's his gracious character to forgive. But anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, We're back in Genesis 12. we're back in a a context where these promises have only just been uttered Abraham's got nothing to go on he's just heard this voice that's commanded him to go and these promises that bear very little resemblance to the reality around him they're invisible to Abraham and as we look back to these early days you can imagine some of the questions that would have popped into his head go to the land that I will show you, where? You might ask the question, when is this going to happen? Abraham might ask the question, why? Why me? In fact, you might be asking the question, why? Why does God decide to promise the world things? Why does He choose this one person? Why does He choose this one nation to bless the world? Why doesn't He just finish it there? Why doesn't He just fix everything? Why doesn't He just destroy everything? Well, we don't want to read too much into God's ways. We know that how dangerous that can be. But I don't think that his use of promise is arbitrary. In fact, I think it's very deliberate. And you see promise and faith, the human, the human component of promise, is the way that God has always wanted his people to relate to him. Faith has always been the way that he wants his people to relate to him. And it's by faith... So that God can be seen as gracious. See, faith actually guarantees that the way that God relates to us is grace. It's not our achievements. It's not by our merit. It's mere faith. It's mere trust. It's, it's empty hands. It's without deserving. It's without capacity. It doesn't matter how wise you are, how, how equipped you are, how well you were brought up. What matters is faith. That's what we're saying when we say that, really, is what really matters is God. Um, You've got a choice when it comes to promises. You can walk by faith, um, or you can walk by sight. You can trust, or you can distrust. And you can see where Abraham sort of nails his colours in verse 4. Verse 1, God had told him to go. He says, leave. And in verse 4, so Abraham left just as the Lord had told him. He needs no convincing. He asks no questions. He doesn't whinge. does exactly what he's told. He entrusts himself to the Lord. And this faith takes a concrete expression. He leaves. He just takes his stuff and he goes. He takes everything and goes. He leaves his family, knowing that he's going to receive more family. He leaves the land, knowing that he's going to receive more land. He didn't see it. He didn't see it. In fact, I can imagine one of these questions on his lips as he, as he left was, where do you want me to go? And, you know, he leaves just with just this purposeless direction. He just goes. And it's not until we get to verse 5 where it says, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And this is the land that he's talking about. But even then, when he answers the question where, uh, there's surely the other question on his lips, which is a pretty big one, is how? Uh, you, you, you see in the story, in verse uh, 6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he's been promised this land and he rocks up and he realizes there's other people there already. It's like going to a, a house inspection and the tenants are still living there with these kind of awkward glances. It's a really difficult experience. And the other big problem that um, Abraham uh, uh, sort of encounters, the big how question, of course, is that his wife's barren. How's he going to live in the land um, with all these people in it? How's he going to populate the land when his wife's barren? But of course, the Lord uh, uh, sort of reaffirms his promise there in verse 7. To your offspring, I will give this, lo- this land. And so Abraham decides not to look at the things around him or his circumstances to make his decisions. He trusts, he puts his eyes to the Lord and he trusts in what He says, You can see that he builds an altar to the Lord. And from there, he goes towards the hills of Bethel, pitches a tent at Bethel on the west, I on the east. And he builds another altar to the Lord. And he calls on the name of the Lord. I I don't know if there's any better expression of faith than prayer. He simply cries out to the Lord his questions. He reorientates himself according to God's purposes, not according to the circumstances around him. And friends, this is ordinary Christian faith. This is the pattern of faith. It's not belief in God as though you're just simply believing that God exists. Some people use the term that way. It's not blind faith as though some risk is taken, as though faith was some form of gambling. It's not faith as opposed to proof, as some people use it, as though you need to commit some form of intellectual suicide to be a Christian. No, faith is trust. It's trusting God like you trust a reliable friend. As one preacher I I heard used to regularly say, it's like like trusting your chair that you're sitting on. You don't question your chair, you just sit on it. But then I think it's even more than that. Uh, One author warns us about having taxi driver faith. You know, you sort of, I mean, this is, I don't have that many experiences getting in a taxi. I can't afford it. But when I do, I just say, this is the place I want to go to. And they, they take me. I don't, I don't really mind which way they take me. I don't really mind. Sometimes it could be, you know. So I say, I'm here in Kirribilli. I say, I want to get to Newtown. And I said, great. And, you know, they sort of want to avoid the toll. So I go out past Parramatta and take me back. I don't, I don't mind too much because they get me to the place that I wanted to go. The problem with taxi driver faith is that Christian, Christian faith, um, you surrender your destination as well. When God is your taxi driver, you get in the car and he just starts driving. You've noticed that, that Abraham just throws over all of his ambitions, all of his directions, and he just gets in the car and they drive off. And this is the trust and the belief of, and the faith that characterizes Christians. It's a trust that God means it when he makes a promise. It's what takes a family like the Bennets from living in a comfortable Australian lifestyle to living in a place like Egypt or a place like Ethiopia. It's a place that makes a man like Peter Tien leave his family and study in a different country. And why? Why do these families do this? Because they're convinced that God has promised and he means his promise that he wants blessings to go to the nations. Bring it closer to home, though. What is it that makes a grieving heart hope? What is it that makes a grumpy heart love? What is it that makes a busy person give up their Sunday evening for church each week? What is it that makes a successful person give up their money uh, and give to organizations like CMS? and giving their money to church and other organizations, giving their money to physical hospitals. It's faith. What is it that stops the very loneliest of people from entering despair? It's faith, knowing the goodness of God and his promise that he will be with you always. What would it be like for you to trust God in a concrete way like this? To entrust your life to Jesus. To trust Jesus, even if people at work think you're stupid. Even if it means that your neighbours will lose their higher opinion of you. Even if it meant living a lower standard of living. Even if it meant leaving your ambitions to one side to live for Jesus and his ambitions. Well, the alternative to walking by faith is walking by sight. And sadly, what we see in the rest of chapter 12 is an account of how Abraham turns his eyes away from trusting God and he turns them towards his circumstances around him. Uh, have a look at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt and, uh, to live there uh, for a while because the famine was severe. And as we read, we notice uh, that instead of faith, there's fear. He looks around and he's scared. And his actions, instead of endorsing the purposes of God, they start jeopardizing the purposes of God, both the land and the offspring. Uh, So first of all, he leaves the land. He leaves the land that God sort of uh, steered him towards, and he moves on to Egypt. He didn't sort of think that God might be able to provide for him in that place, and he moves on. And the result is that he goes... uh, Secondly, the thing that happens is that uh, you see in verse 11... As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And he takes his El-Macpherson look-alike wife and he sort of treats her as his sister and gambles the fact that he might have children in the future because his wife is now the wife of another man. Uh, it's very noble of him sort of preventing his, his death in this way. Um, but in both cases, both the way that he sort of neglected the land and neglected the promise to his offspring, his eyes had shifted away from the, the promise of God, and he sort of looked to the provision of his own circumstances and the security of his own life. And what you see in the end as well is that the blessing that might have come to Egypt in some other way actually turns into a curse, as God is forced into save uh, uh, Abram from his situation. And so what we, what we see in this story in chapter 12 is that Abraham basically fails in every count. Uh, he had faith at one point, but at this, in this particular example, he just makes a mess of it. And I wonder if you're in a situation where you know a failure in your life. There's something that just weighs you down. Maybe it's something that you just keep repeating to, right? you keep coming back to, um, where you, you didn't trust the Lord and you've, you wonder what kind of person am I for doing this? Um, but the thing is here that this is not the end of the story. Uh, we know actually that, we've, you know, we read it before, that God intervenes and he rescues Abraham. So despite the fact that Abraham gave up on God's purposes, God didn't give up on Abraham. And so God rescues him. And in the end, Abraham actually does pretty well out of it. He gets camels. And you know, when you got camels, you've really made it. This is like the, the Porsche of the ancient world. They were sort of riding around on camels. It's excellent. Um, he does pretty well out of it. And um, in, verse, in chapter 13, let, let me just read chapter 13 and you see just the way that this, this story comes to a close. Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. He returns back to his roots. He went there with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. And Abraham became very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. And from the Negev, He went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had earlier been, and where he had first built an altar. And there, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And here we we see in Abraham another example of faith. Yes, he failed, but he doesn't let this failure define him. But instead, he decides to trust the Lord. He lives not by sight, but by faith. And even after his failure, even after his failure, he trusts the Lord. You see, it's never been about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong your God is. And Abraham continues to trust. And actually, as we read the story, um, if we were to read all of the story, and maybe it's worth sort of picking out Genesis 12 to 25 to read sometime, you'll see that Abraham never actually sees the promises fully realized around him. God says to him, go, get out of here. Abraham says, where? He says, don't worry, just go. I'll tell you later. Later, God says to him, I'll give you a son. Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later, just trust. And back down in chapter 22... He goes to the top of the. He says, "Go to the top of the mountain, put your son to death." And Abraham says, "Why?" And God says, "I'll tell you later. Just climb." He never sees the fulfillment of these promises, but we know God is faithful, and He fulfilled every one of them. Uh, the letter of the Hebrews just sums it up so well, and. The passage we had read out before, chapter eleven, verse thirteen and following. All these people, Abraham and others, all these old heroes of faith, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things so that they're not they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return, but instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Someone else who I think understood this really well was the Apostle Paul. And some of his words in 2 Corinthians are just spot on. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. And applied in reflection to his life later in chapter six, he describes his his life. He says he was unknown and yet recognized. He was dying, but look, we live. He was grieving, yet always rejoicing. He was poor, yet enriching many. He was having he had nothing. And yet, he possessed everything. And friends, this example of Abraham, this example of the Apostle Paul, is the normal Christian experience. It's the normal Christian experience in a world that is not right, that is out of joint, that God is determined to bless. We walk by faith, not by sight. Your experiences will go up and down. They will go all over the place. You'll be tired. You'll be sad. You'll wonder about God's power and how he feels towards you. And it's at these times that we don't let sight rule us. We walk not according to sight, but according to faith.